0: There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, rutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's a
1: trium, a terbium, actinium, Well, a
0: welcome. And you know what? Uh, I'm not going to let you get away with not answering the questions that I posed last time, so I'm going to re-ask them. Plus, I'll give you a brand new one. So here we go with last week's questions. Kispeptin is a hormone involved in reproductive behavior, and low levels have been associated with a low sex drive. Why is it called Kispentin? Then, a 42-year-old man experienced fatal cardiac arrhythmia after repeated purposeful exposure to difluoroethane. What consumer product did he use as a source of this chemical? Those are the hangovers from last time. And uh, I will give you one additional question. Why is there a statue of Peter Pan in front of the great Ormond Street Hospital in London? If you ever visit London, go over to the Great Ormond Street Hospital. You'll see a statue of Peter Pan in front. Why is it there? If you know the answer to any of those questions, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. And should you not know who you're listening to, I'm George Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. my background is chemistry, and as I am very fond of telling you, I think chemistry is the science that links all the other sciences together because when you have a fundamental understanding of what molecules are all about and what they can and cannot do, you pretty well have a feel for what can and cannot happen in terms of drugs, foods, food additives, cosmetics, uh, etc. Including glucagon like peptide one agonists. Well, sounds like a mouthful. But you know what? These substances may actually keep you from filling your mouth. What am I talking about? The uh drugs that everyone is talking about these days Ozempic, Bigovi and Monjaro. They are the these are the GLP one agonists. And recently, they have been absolutely basking in the sunlight. Why? Because they are being presented as the long-awaited medications to help in the battle against obesity. Uh, you know what? The Holy Grail is very elusive. I don't think that these are going to turn out to be the Holy Grail. But they are interesting compounds, and I think they have a chance of... Uh, Making a significant advance in the treatment of obesity. Uh, now obesity of course is, is defined scientifically. It's not just, you know, being a little bit overweight. It's having a a body mass index of at least 27, although generally accepted as over 30 is what is, is obese. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, Obesity in itself, of course, is is not a disease. Uh, It certainly is a risk factor for many diseases. People who are overweight are at greater risk for diabetes. That then puts them at greater risk for heart disease. Obesity is risk factor for for cancer. Uh, Obviously, it is not something that is desirable in terms of, of health. Over the years... Years, there have been many uh, diets, of course. Uh, They are all destined to fail. This is one thing that we know, is that diets are effective in the short term. It doesn't matter what diet you're following, whether it's a carnivore diet, the, the paleo diet, a keto diet. It doesn't matter because in the short term, all of these diets restrict your intake of calories and they will work. But we also know experimentally that in the long run, People just cannot keep to them. And we see, in many cases, significant weight loss after six months of being on these diets. And after a year, the weight comes back. Why? Because people just cannot stick to these diets. They're too restrictive. So because of that, of course, a number of drugs have emerged to help people fight the battle of the bulge. And – these two have uh, efficacy, uh, but they have a downside. And if you remember the fen-fen business, uh, those two drugs in combination were effective at causing weight loss, but then they had an effect on heart. So they, they were um, uh, taken off the market. And uh, over the years, there were many, many claimants to being the effective uh, weight loss drug. None of them really have turned out to to have a a, a very significant uh, impact. However, there may be a different case for the this novel uh, entity, the glucocon-like peptide agonist. <clears throat> it turns out that when you eat food and it passes from the stomach into the small intestine, uh, the beginning of the small intestine is of course called the duodenum. That when uh, glucose from food hits the duodenum, uh, there are hormones that are secreted that travel in the bloodstream and trigger activity in the pancreas. They cause the release of pancreatic juices, which go through ducts into the digestive tract, and they will uh, enable food to be broken down, metabolized, so they can be, uh, so the nutrients can be absorbed. The pancreas, of course, also releases insulin into the bloodstream. And insulin is the so-called gatekeeper for glucose. It is what allows glucose to enter cells. And cells, of course, need glucose. That's their prime source of, um, of energy. So uh, the question is whether or not these hormones that are released from the duodenum, from the intestine, that trigger activity in the pancreas, including insulin release, could they be used in the treatment of diabetes? Because diabetes, of course, is the lack of insulin production by the pancreas. So if you can force the pancreas to increase its insulin release, that would be a good thing. Now, of course, uh, one can circumvent the pancreas by injecting insulin into the bloodstream, which is what type 1 diabetics have to do. And many type 2 diabetics end up in the same place. But um, Insulin injections have to be done very carefully because you constantly have to monitor your glucose levels, and uh, if the levels fall too low, you become hypoglycemic, and then, of course, you have to have an intake of sugar very quickly. So insulin, while it is an absolutely marvelous drug for the treatment of, of uh, diabetes, is kind of a brute force treatment because um, it can also uh, allow for blood sugar to fall too low now in the case of these uh, glucagon like peptide agonists these hormones that are generated in the in the duodenum and that then travel to to the, the pancreas they have a much more controlled measure that is they release insulin from the pancreas only when stimulated by glucose in the diet so the chance of of having blood levels fall too low is is much um, much less of a problem so the first attempt uh, at using these hormones to to uh, treat diabetes uh failed why because although these hormones can be isolated from the uh, digestive tract, from from the duodenum, and they can be reproduced synthetically, which is not all that difficult to do because uh, these are so-called peptide hormones made up of a chain of amino acids, and it's only about 30 amino acids, and that can be reproduced in the laboratory quite easily. But the problem was that uh, these get broken down in the bloodstream very quickly. so. Having to inject yourself every few minutes, of course, is not a practical uh, treatment. So the question was to find a form of these uh, glucagon-like peptide agonists that would have a longer lifetime in the bloodstream. And the first clue came, believe it or not, from a very, very unusual source. It came from a lizard. This lizard is called the gila monster. And um, it is found mostly in New Mexico and in Arizona. And it turns out that the saliva of this lizard contains a compound that is very similar to these glucagon-like peptide agonists, and it does not get degraded so quickly in the bloodstream. And in 2005, a synthetic version of that... uh, chemical in the saliva of the Gila monster was introduced into medicine as a treatment for diabetes. And it worked. The problem was that you had to inject it twice a day, which again is not that, uh, you know, not that practical. So then of course the search was on to improve upon this molecule because now there was a template for something that indeed lasted longer in the bloodstream and you just had to find a better molecule of the same kind and therein lies the interesting story all right back to the gila monster well actually it isn't really a monster this lizard is about a a foot long but it does have a venomous bite and uh, it was from that venom, well, more particularly the saliva, where this you know venom is, is exuded, that in 1992, uh, Dr. John Eng of the Veterans Administration Hospital in, in uh, New York City uh, discovered a compound in the lizard saliva that behaved like the. Glucocon-like peptide that stimulates insulin release from the pancreas. It was slightly different in its molecular structure, but it behaved in a similar way, and better yet, it was not broken down in the bloodstream. And uh, in 1996, Dr. Eng uh, licensed this to Amelin, a pharmaceutical company that then partnered with Eli Lilly to in- introduce exenatide, which was a synthetic version of this uh, uh, chemical in the saliva of the lizard. It was called Bayetta, and uh, it was destined for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. But it required a twice-daily injection, and that is not very practical. However, there was something very interesting noted. Patients who used this drug, it also caused weight loss and it curbed their appetite. Now parallel to the development of, of uh, Bieta, a Danish pharmaceutical company called Novo Nordisk was also tackling the problem of the breakdown of the uh, GLP one molecule. And the idea was to prevent it from coming into contact with enzymes in the bloodstream that would break it down. And after a lot of experimentation, they found that by linking it to another protein that's produced in the body called albumin, they were able to circumvent the breakdown. And uh, this came on the market as liraglutide uh, for the treatment of diabetes, And it also curbed the appetite, and subsequently, it was approved for obesity as well. And then came further adjustments in molecular structure, leading to semaglutide. And that's the stuff that you've been hearing so much about, because that is the active ingredient in Ozempic, and uh, it is also found in a slightly higher dose in Vagovi, which is uh, now prescribed for obesity. There's another drug, Monjaro, newest kid on the block, and it promises even to be more effective. Now there are some caveats considered before, you know, anointing these drugs as the holy grail of weight control. First of all, the cost around a thousand dollars a month, uh, not covered by most insurance companies. So these are very expensive and they have to be used continuously. Soon as you stop using them, the weight comes back. In terms of long-term effects, well, long-term effects are unknown because they're not been around for a long term. And you cannot know long-term effects until you've experienced a long term. So because uh, uh, these drugs have, you know, been only around a few years, uhm, we really cannot say anything about, you know, whether or not anything happens after a decade of, of, of use. <laughs> there have been some, some hints of possible adverse effects on the thyroid and pancreas, but you have to keep in mind that overweight or obesity is a real risk factor for many medical conditions. So even if there is a small risk with using these medications, you have to, you know, balance it against the benefits of these uh, drugs. So the discovery has been very interesting and the, the chemistry is interesting in sort of, you know, modifying the naturally uh, occurring uh, uh, compound, the glucagon-like peptide uh, one in the body. And uh, it has been, you know, a triumph of pharmaceutical chemistry to come up with things like Ozempic, which mimic this natural hormone without being readily broken down in in the bloodstream. So we'll have to see how this plays out. Uh it may not exactly be a giant leap in the battle against obesity. Uh it may be more like taking a large step. But uh we'll see, you know, how this turns out. But for now it looks very promising. Although of course the advertising that we've been you know exposed to is is a bit too enthusiastic uh telling people to just go and ask their doctor about ozempic as because as you know in canada on television advertising uh for pharmaceutical drugs you cannot mention what a drug is to be used for so these ads are very clever where they just tell you to ask your doctor about ozempic and of course the suggestion being that he or she is going to recommend the use of, of uh, ozempic now right now ozempic is not uh indicated uh for obesity it is it has only been approved for type 2 diabetes but of course once a drug has been approved uh, a physician can prescribe it so called off label for any condition that they seem fit uh on the other hand, VEGOVI, which is um, a more concentrated version, uh, or a, it's a higher dose is the way to say it. Uh, Ozempic is a two milligram dose and uh, VEGOVI is a 2.4 milligram dose. And that one is being prescribed uh, for obesity. And um, a lot of people are satisfied with it. It doesn't work in everyone. But some people have experienced a 15% weight loss with uh, with these uh, uh, medications. And for the chronically overweight people, you know, uh, uh, people who are at least um, over 30 BMI or 27 BMI with one other risk factor like, you know, hypertension, um high cholesterol etc uh yes indeed uh when you go and ask your doctor the doctor may say ozempic is uh, is indicated but uh when it comes to a uh, hollywood actress trying to slim down to fit into that size a dress no that is not what ozempic is is for it's a serious medication for serious problems and there has been some serious chemistry that has gone into developing it. Okay, I think we have some callers on the line who may have an answer to my my questions. Let's go to Gary.
1: Gary? Hi there, Dr. Joe, do you hear me? I hear you. Okay, great. Uh, the reason there's a statue of uh, Peter Pan outside the Children's Hospital in London is because the author of Peter Pan, J.M. Barry left the copyright to peter pan uh left the copyright of peter pan to the hospital in his estate when he died and it's produced millions and millions of dollars for the hospital Uh, one thing i found very unique was the copyright had expired about would have expired a number of years ago but because of the fact that the money was going to the hospital the copyright was continued in perpetuity so that's very very the writer that was a very good thing and uh, it's done a lot of good for a lot of people, a lot of kids. The writer was a little strange. He had some really oddball things going on in his personal life, but uh, he did a good story, and the story lasted over 100 years. Bingo. You got that one right. Well, I'm going to keep badgering you
0: with my leftover questions until I get an answer. Kispeptin, a hormone involved in reproductive behavior, low levels associated with low sex drive. Why is it called Kispentin? I'll give you a clue. It has to do with the place where it was discovered. And the other question. 42-year-old man experienced fatal cardiac arrhythmia after repeated purposeful exposure to difluoroethane. What consumer product did he use as a source of this chemical? All right, I'll give you a clue for that one too. Spray is the clue. Spray. Okay, now back to Peter Pan and why there is a statue of the eternal boy in front of the Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. Uh, James Matthew Berry, of course, is the author of uh, Peter Pan. And uh, as you heard, he indeed donated all royalties uh, from Peter Pan to the hospital. Well, uh, James was born in the small weaving town of Kirmuir in Scotland, 1860 and he was the ninth of 10 children. Uh, Unfortunately, one of his brothers, uh, young David, was gravely injured in a skating accident and died shortly afterwards. His mother obviously was devastated, but she said that she derived some consolation from the notion that David would remain a boy forever. And to young James, this was an inspiration and it implanted an idea in his mind about uh, staying young forever. Anyway, much later, when he was about 37 years old and already a writer, uh, he met a family while walking through Kensington Gardens in London. And this was the Llewellyn family, and uh, they had uh, three boys, and uh, two more boys were born somewhat later. Uh, anyway, uh, Barry developed a strong friendship with the children and their parents, Sylvia and Arthur. And in 1901, during a summer holiday, uh, he invited them to his country house in Surrey and uh, took photographs of George, Jack, and Peter, uh, the oldest boys and their exploits, and uh, turned this into a book. It was called The Boy Castaways, and that became the precursor to Peter Pan. Unfortunately, Sylvia and Arthur both tragically died of cancer when the boys were still young. And uh, Barry, even though he was divorced, uh, became their guardian. And he brought them up as his own children. And, uh, his, his life with the boys has been explained as the strongest inspiration for the creation of Peter Pan, uh, which, uh, occurred in 1904. So now you know why there is a statue of Peter Pan in front of Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. Uh, they receive all the royalties and, and those royalties, of course, are, are, uh, a lot, uh, because Peter Pan is extremely popular, uh, around the world all right now i want to talk to you about well i want to talk to you about a couple of other things uh, you may have seen this uh, past week many many newscasts talked about uh, the use and the overuse of so-called quaternary ammonium compounds uh, which are being used as disinfectants and they find use in all kinds of commercial items. Uh, they're finding found in shampoos. They're, they they work as antistatic static uh, agents. Uh, you know, in your uh, dryer sheets. Uh, they are found in disinfectants, in hand cleaners, etc. And because they are active against bacteria uh, and some viruses, they found. Uh, extensive use during covid people were washing their surfaces with all kinds of disinfectants and uh, rinsing even their food uh, with these chemicals even after it became very clear that the uh, virus was not spread uh, by touching uh, objects it was spread through the air but in any case uh, the use of these compounds, so-called quaternary ammonium compounds, and they're so-called because uh, they contain a nitrogen with four groups attached to it. That's where the word quaternary uh, comes from. And because of the, the increased use of these chemicals, there was a lot of interest generated among scientists about what they are actually doing. And it turns out that they're doing some things that are undesirable. Uh, for example, uh, in uh, manufacturing facilities where these chemicals are, uh, where, you know, the items that contain these chemicals are, are being made, uh, they noticed increased incidence of respiratory diseases such as asthma. Uh, then uh, another um, observation was that microbes which were initially sensitive to the quaternary ammonium compounds developed a resistance to them not only did they develop a resistance, but they were also able to transfer some of the genes that code for proteins that made uh, that were responsible for resistance to other organisms that heretofore were susceptible to antibiotics. But all of a sudden, the antibiotics no longer worked because of the overuse of these quaternary ammonium compounds. Uh, there are other issues, uh, in some cases they can cause dermatitis, uh, they can cause inflammation, uh, there have also been stories about infertility, uh, however, most of those are from animal experiments. It, it, some interesting, uh, the way it, this came about, uh, was it, it was noted that, uh, mice, uh, became infertile when they were kept in, uh, cages, And eventually, uh, the researchers traced this to the cleaning agent with which they had scrubbed the cages, and those contained quaternary ammonium compounds. Now, of course, in those cases, the exposure to the mice, obviously based on their small body weight, was extensive. So it's hard to know what this means for, for humans, but in any case, you don't like to see fertility problems in in animals with any chemical that finds its way to uh, into the human body and these quats certainly do find their way into the human body because people are still using all kinds of disinfecting agents in the kitchen all kinds of cleaning agents and and they're really not necessary people underestimate the efficacy of just soap and water in in cleaning uh, soap is a very effective chemical, and you don't have to worry about inhaling its fumes and um, you don't have to worry about uh fertility problems i mean that those are non existent with uh, uh, with soap uh Soap is not going to cause resistance to any kind of uh, antibiotic. Uh, there have been no immune effects noted with with um, uh, soap. So that really is the uh, preferable agent. unless, there is something going on you know if someone has some uh, infectious disease in 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 the household uh that may be a different case then you may want to disinfect but the routine use of these quaternary ammonium compounds in cleaning agents and in you know dryer sheets is is probably not uh, not a good idea we we want to limit the use of substances in the environment that are not absolutely essential now that being said though uh, there are situations where disinfectants and preservatives are essential. I mean, you don't want bacteria growing in your face cream. Uh, and remember that every time that you dip your finger into, into a cream and apply it to the body and then dip your finger in there again, you've transferred some microbes back into the product. And uh, these cosmetic products uh, have a lot of water, they have fatty materials, and that is the prime environment for the multiplication of of, uh, bacteria. And uh, in that particular case, I mean, obviously the inclusion of a a preservative and quaternary ammonium compounds fall into that category, that is desirable. Now, whether or not the quats are the best preservatives, that's highly questionable. Uh, And these things are are being uh, uh, looked at now to see, you know, whether or not these quaternary ammonium compounds are overused. Uh, You'll uh, you'll very often recognize them on the label because they will have uh, uh, something like uh, anomium as the suffix, benzalconium chloride, for example, is uh, is a classic one. Cetylpyridinium uh, bromide or chloride, that is uh, another one and uh you'll you'll find that in some mouthwashes for example well again the wisdom of using these is you know being called into uh, question by this uh, paper that appeared um, in uh, environmental science and technology journal this past week and has received a, a lot of publicity in a very reasonable way so we do have to reconsider the use of these kind of compounds well in this case i think that never-ending search has now come to an end because James, who we can always rely on, I think has finally tracked down my question about Kiss Penton and why is it so called? And indeed it is so called because it was discovered in Hershey, Pennsylvania, which of course is home to the Hershey's kisses. And that's why the researchers called it Kiss Penton. And there's a trivia question for you. All right. We still have Jerry on the line. Jerry.
1: Hi, so I knew the Hershey one. I'm wondering whether or not the um, second question was because uh, uh, taking in, like for instance, the Dream Whip containers, that those the propellant inside them, because that's Freon, isn't it? That uh, that compound
0: uh no the that's nitrous oxide it's ah. nitrous oxide in, in in whipped cream but you're you're getting to be sort of in the right ballpark <laughs> so we're 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 talking about a spray, but it's not a it's nothing to do with food you okay. it's uh it's more more to do with cleaning with cleaning yeah, oh
1: interesting okay well I'll wait for the answer all
0: right maybe someone Bye-bye. else will uh uh, come up with that all right so we're still looking for uh, this uh, uh, chemical which has caused uh, cardiac arrhythmia it's a something that that you can purchase uh, I give you a, uh, I'll give you another clue I, I guess here's the clue computer computer okay that's the clue uh, let me uh, switch to something else uh, <laughs> this week on uh, one of my uh, videos. And you know i I try to do a couple of those short videos every week. Uh, I focused on blueberries, and uh, you know you never know how much uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, commentary these videos will generate, but this one has generated a lot i I guess blueberries uh, because of all the talk about them has have become a sort of component of many people's lives. And uh, I did mention that the good news about them keeps coming. And in this case, I I referenced um, uh, a new publication from King's college in London, where they looked at the daily consumption of freeze dried blueberry powder. And, uh, uh, they wanted to see whether or not it had uh, any effect on some parameters that you could uh, uh, relatively easily measure uh, such as blood pressure or uh, blood flow uh, memory you know i mean you, you you can sort of measure short term memory relatively easily by asking people to you know memorize list of, of names and then asking them uh, a little bit later uh, to see how many of those they they resem they remember so anyway uh it turned out that that uh, uh, the freeze dried blueberry powder did in fact have uh, a measurable effect on on lowering uh, blood pressure, improving blood flow, strengthening short term memory and uh, in a better ability to focus uh, when you're being distracted now it's the kind of study that that i normally do pay attention to because this one was a double blind study it was a randomized controlled trial and it had a significant number of subjects which means that you randomly distribute your subjects into two groups and you administer whatever sub whatever material you're testing to one group and a placebo to the other. Nobody knows who is getting what, except of course for a statistician who can decode it after the experiment is over. So they they had 61 subjects between the ages of 65 and, and 80. and you know that's that's getting to be a respectable number. It's very hard to do uh, studies on the sub, on more subjects than that. So they were divided into an experimental group and a control group. And the experimental group drank a daily beverage containing 26 grams of freeze dried blueberry powder. And the control group was given a beverage that, that tasted the same. It had roughly the same nutritional value. The only thing it didn't have was the blueberry component. So. Uh there was an improvement, as I said, in cognition and blood flow. And the researchers think that it is due to the, the blue pigment in uh, the blueberries, the anthocyanins. We've talked about these bef- before. Uh, they're a type of polyphenol. And uh, they have been shown to have health benefits in a number of studies, uh, mostly because they have an ability to reduce oxidative stress. What does that mean? It means they can neutralize uh, these free radicals those are nasty substances that are formed in the body during uh, uh, during life when we eat food we metabolize food we produce some of these free radicals and they they can uh, wreak havoc when they interact with proteins and with nucleic acids uh, but uh, it seems that these anthocyanins can curb the production of uh, of these free uh, radicals. There was another possibility that the researchers raised in this case, and that was that the anthocyanins may have an effect on the microbiome, uh, the set of bacteria that inhabit our gut, and uh, the ones that play a surprising role in the maintenance of, of health. And some of these bacteria produce uh, butyrate, and this is a chemical that can enter circulation and produce anti-inflammatory effects, and uh, it has been linked with a reduction of cardiovascular disease. So, although we may not know exactly by what mechanism blueberries, uh, you know, are causing some beneficial uh, effects. uh... Does it really matter? I mean, they, the fact is that, that they do seem to have these benefits. Now, of course, I'm always reticent to label anything as a superfood. There are no superfoods. Uh, there are healthy diets and unhealthy diets. Now, if you want to call the, the foods that make up a healthy diet superfoods, well, okay, I, I guess that's a, a question of, of terminology. And uh, certainly uh, blueberries would fall into that category because they are uh, a rich source of these particular anthocyanins, only outranked by chokeberries, elderberries, and black raspberries. Incidentally, the black raspberries are not the same as blackberries. Uh, they have half as much anthocyanin content, although still appreciable. And then, of course, there are other fruits and vegetables that also contain anthocyanins. Oh, things things like eggplants, for, for example, but much, much less than the berries. So there's no question that blueberries are the most readily available high anthocyanin food. But they are not a drug. They're not a drug. They're a food with potential health benefits like many other foods have. All right, but now comes a fundamental question. As I told you in this study, the experimental subjects were given 26 grams of freeze-dried blueberry powder. What is that equivalent to in terms of blueberries? Well, it turns out it's about 80 blueberries. So they were eating the equivalent of 80 blueberries a day uh, to trigger the beneficial effects. It's not that difficult to eat 80 blueberries a day. Uh I mean the only uh you know problematic side here is is that uh, there is a cost involved, of course. I mean blueberries are are not the uh, cheapest fruit, which is uh, understandable. I mean, you have to pick the blueberries, uh, you know, and they're small, and and uh, not all that many go into into a container. So there's a reason that these are expensive, and especially, obviously, in the winter we don't grow them here, so they have to be uh, imported. But you know, it's it's a question of where you allocate your food dollars, uh, and uh, I, I think it's worthwhile to allocate some to berries because we keep getting more and more information about the benefits of uh, uh, of these uh, these fruits. So, you know, I do try to eat my eighty blueberries every day, and at the very least, they taste good, and uh, you know, it's better than having a, a Danish for a breakfast. So I, I, I like to eat my berries for breakfast every day together with some avocado toast. We've talked about the benefits of avocado. And I do wash it down with coffee. I have nothing against coffee, uh, certainly not one or two cups a day. I think the benefits there outweigh the risks as well. But that's it. We are out of time today. The hour has flown by. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.